This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Travis asked me to uh, dismiss the children, so let me attempt to do that now. Uh, children uh, four to six years old are, are now dismissed at the, the, the children's church at their parents' discretion. And parents, uh, if you haven't signed them in yet, please do that so that the church can have uh, a record of who is in attendance. Um, as was mentioned, my name is Mike Law. That was a true report from Sam. And I have the joy of, of serving uh, as the pastor of Arlington Baptist Church. It's a joy to be with you again. We pray for you and think of you often. Uh, it's a privilege to open uh, God's words to you this morning. And, and I want to pray for our time now together. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, as we approach your word, we pray for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the conversion of sinners, for the edification of saints, and the glorification of your triune name. We pray for the hearing of children, for the hearing of teenagers, for the hearing of young adults, the middle-aged, the elderly, and everyone. We pray for listening ears and understanding hearts. Father, we know how real the danger is of not hearing well. So help us. Help us to concentrate fully on your word as it comes to us so that we may hear and not perish. Let your word have free and full reign in our hearts. Let it be accompanied with light and power and grace. Help us to come to your word as we really are, as those in need. So purge our hearts of carnal lusts and help us to cling to Christ for the cleansing power of his blood. Oh, Father, we pray and ask that you would bring conviction, quickening, humbling, and comforting power to work through your word in the fulfillment of your promises. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1738, Jonathan Edwards preached a series of sermons to his congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts on the subject of love. It wasn't until almost a hundred years later that the manuscripts of these sermons were finally compiled into a single book now entitled Charity and Its Fruits. In the first of these wonderful expositions, Edwards claimed that, quote, all virtue, that is, saving, all virtue, that is, saving, and that distinguishes true Christians from others, is summed up in Christian love. As we turn to consider 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-11, through 11, we see that the center of the Apostle John's heart and mind is the subject of love. John was eager to remind his brothers and sisters in Christ of what love looked like, where love derives its strength and power, and how God's people are called to love. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, or turn on your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just go ahead and set the context uh, and purpose of John's letter, and I would really commend you to keeping your Bibles open and on. Uh, that will help to prevent some boredom, and boredom is bad. So we want to be engaged with the text and looking at it and sticking our noses in it. Well, what have we learned so far in this letter of John if we were reading it. John's letter, you should know, uh, seems to have been written to 
Christians in and around his local area, which was Ephesus. Uh, It was most likely written after John's gospel, toward the end of John's life. That means that this letter was probably written sometime between the early 80s and the late 90s of the first century. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we learn the overarching purpose of John's letter. There we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the purpose of John's letter, John wants these believers to know that they have eternal life. That's the goal of his letter. And so far in this letter, if we had been reading up to this point, we would see that John has assured his readers that God really did take on flesh in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is how we have fellowship with God and with one another. John has also communicated to his readers that those who have fellowship with the holy God live holy lives. This is a major focus of John's letter. And we're going to continue to think about this as we study John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-11. through 11. We're going to study these verses under three headings. The pattern of love, the power of love, and the practice of love. And let's begin with our first point. The pattern of love. Of love, And as we do, follow along as I read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him... Truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, in these verses we see that the pattern of love, the way in which we can be sure our love for God is real is by keeping God's commandments and by walking in the way that Jesus walked. That's the pattern of of love, keeping God's commandments. These wonderful and challenging verses are inescapably connected to the verses that preceded them and to the whole thrust of John's letter. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, if you take a look over there, John has just told his readers, look, my little children, if you do sin, go back to the cross. Go back to the cross and believe that Jesus died for you. That he took all of God's wrath that was due to your sin. And don't diminish his death on the cross. And think that it wasn't sufficient to pay for your sins. His death on the cross was sufficient not only for the payment of all of your sins, but also for the payment of all of the sins of many people all around this world. Jesus died for you and for many others too. So that you might have fellowship with God and with God's people. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. Your hope is in him. And what we read in verses 3 to 6 is almost John's version of Paul's statement in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. There Paul said, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who have died to sin, live in it? It's unthinkable to Paul that Christians should go on sinning. And it is unthinkable to John too. He's just said, Believe that Jesus died for you. And show your belief by your obedience. John wants his readers to know that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Or as he puts it there in verse 3, you see, John wants his readers to know know that they have come to know him. John wants his first readers, and God wants us 
to know, reading this letter now, to know, to be sure of our knowledge of God. John is saying that there is warrant or grounds for being sure that we know God. There is good reason to be sure that we have fellowship with God. And this isn't a risky wager. There is a certainty. But what does it mean to know God? Well, for John, this means that we have come into fellowship with God. We have a a deep bond and connection with him. It means we have a relationship with God. And not just any relationship, but a a living, a, a friendly and affectionate relationship with God. We can have relationships in this life that are filled with animosity and tension. But we have to have them because they're necessary. We have to have a relationship with that irritating coworker, And we have to talk with them about certain things in order to work together on certain things if we want to have a job. But that relationship may be filled with animosity and tension because we, we don't see eye to eye on several things. That is not the kind of relationship that John is talking about. John is not talking about a relationship in which God puts up with us even though he doesn't like us. And conversely, John is not talking about the relationship between us and God where where we put up with him, but we don't really like him. No, the kind of relationship that John is talking about is a relationship filled with love, characterized by love, where God is our Father and he extends care to us, to his beloved children. John is talking about the kind of relationship where we know that God is our loving Father and we adore him. We're grateful that he's our Father. We come to him with our concerns and he listens. We share with him our joys and he smiles upon us. To know God is to have a personal relationship with him. So how do we know that we have come to know him? What is the ground of our confidence that we have personal knowledge of God? We know that we know God. We can be certain that we have come into fellowship with him if, John says, we keep his commandments. Our obedience to God's commands by the power of the Holy Spirit is one of the grounds of Christian assurance. Keeping God's commands is a sign, a sure indication to us and others around us that we know him, that we know God. Now, as uh, Christians who are well acquainted with God's grace, with the fact that God saves sinners not on the basis of anything that we have done, but solely on the basis of his unmerited, unearned favor, this might strike our ears as a kind of legalism. Some warning bells might be going off in our minds. Law alert, law alert here. Well, if those warning bells are going off, let me assure you they're false alarms. John is fully aware that if we are to keep God's commandments, it is only because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells within us is enabling us to do so. John is certainly aware of the prophet Ezekiel's teaching in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, where we read, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart and flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." John is also fully aware of Jesus' teaching on this subject. In John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So you see, the the commandment keeping that John has in view here, that will be a source of assurance to Christians, is a spirit-driven imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians will actively and joyfully pursue the keeping of God's commandments because in doing so they are imitating the Savior who sought them and bought them with his redeeming blood. And keeping God's commandments, we are simply reflecting the character of the Father who loves us. In keeping God's commandments, we're simply following in the footsteps of Jesus who kept God's commandments for us and for our salvation. As Christians who love God's grace, we should not be afraid to embrace God's law. God's law is not contrary to God's grace. It is in harmony with God's grace. Just think for a minute about when the people of Israel received the law of God. Was it before God saved them from slavery in Egypt or after? It was after, wasn't it? God saved them and called them to obey his commands. He said, you are free And here is the pattern and path of freedom. Walk in these ways. This is what it looks like to live as someone freed, someone loved, and someone who loves. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he told us to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. You see, obedience is one of the great ends of the gospel. Those who have truly come to know God keep his commandments. And this seems to be the very force of verses 4 to 6, when John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So you see, if verse 3 is the kind of positive statement, then verse 4 is a negative statement proclaiming this truth. John says that people claiming to know God and have fellowship with him but don't keep his commands are not telling the truth. Well, that's not quite putting it strongly enough, is it? Because John calls them liars. John doesn't mince his words, does he? Those who do not keep God's commands are walking in lies, which is to say that the truth is not in them. They do not have God's word of truth in them, his son, Jesus Christ. This is the contrast, or it's contrasted in the beginning of verse 5 with the way which John has already outlined in verse 3. Whoever keeps God's word, in him the love of God is being perfected. And this idea that the love of God is being perfected actually carries with it the notion is that God's love is being completed or kind of carried through to fulfillment. God set his saving love upon his people so that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. This is what John's argument seems to be marching toward in the latter part or the last part of verse 5 and all of verse 6. John again says that there is a way that we can be sure that we have fellowship with God, union and communion with him. And that is by walking in the way that Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? Well, he kept God's commands. He obeyed God's word. He walked in God's ways. He did all of it for us so that we would not live under the condemnation of the law. And he did all of it for us, so that we would know the way in which we are to walk. Now let's be clear. We, 
we have failed to keep God's commandments. We've failed to keep God's commands even after we have come to faith in Christ and been given the strength and gift of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we've sinned. But true Christians won't continue on in habitual sin. The true Christian will fight against sin, endeavoring to turn from it, not only because the Spirit has given them the power to do so, but also because God's love for us strengthens us to do so. The pattern of love is nothing less than the keeping of God's commands. This is love's pattern because the law is nothing less than love for God and love for neighbor. Which leads us to our second point, the power of love. This is what we find in verses 7 and 8 of John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. Take a look at verses 7 and 8 now. Read those verses. Beloved, I am writing to you, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In these verses, we see that the power of love, that is to say the strength to love, is rooted in God's love for us. Now, our, our first temptation in reading these verses is to try and figure out what this new but old commandment is that John's readers had heard from the beginning. We need to think through that, but first we, we at least need to dip our toes in the oasis of that single word that begins there, verse 7. Beloved. What a wonderful word. That word beloved may certainly express John's affection for these brothers and sisters in Christ, these dear saints, his care for them. But more than that, John is likely reminding them that they are God's beloved, that they are the people that God loves. And this is true for all Christians. In just a moment, John is going to urge his readers to love one another, but John knows that we love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 You see, in this word beloved, John is doing what what Paul actually often does. In order to encourage believers to walk in holiness, Paul reminds them of the motivation for their pursuit of holiness, the very love of God for them and toward them. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, As God's chosen ones, that's who you are, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, Paul was motivating the Colossians to obedience and Christian virtue in view of the fact that they are God's beloved. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We read there, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter begins with beloved. You are loved by God. When John begins to talk about this old but new commandment, he wants to set it in the back of his reader's mind, the motivation for walking in this commandment. The motivation which will propel us to walk in God's commandment is God's love for us. We are his beloved. And Christian, there is nothing like 
God's love, to empower you to express your love for him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not following Jesus Christ, abiding in him, walking in the way in which he walked, then I want you to know about his love for sinners like you and me. Friend, we have all rebelled against God. We have not walked in his ways. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It is living our way rather than God's way. It's an offense against God. And because God is good, holy, and just, he cannot let sins go unpunished. That is why, in love, he sent his beloved son, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you see, he was fully God and fully man, and he lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. While we are sinful, Jesus is and was sinless. Jesus was perfectly innocent, perfectly free of sin. And yet he died on the cross, bearing the punishment due to sinners like you and me. He was perfectly righteous. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners in their place was acceptable to God's sight. Jesus' life and death was the greatest display of love that the world has ever seen. And he calls us to receive the benefits of his saving love. So turn from your sin and place your faith in him. Jesus commands you and calls you as the sovereign Lord of the universe, as the author of your life, as the one who laid down his life in the place of sinners. Jesus calls you and commands you to come to him, to turn from your sin and to believe upon him. And so have eternal life, to know his love. Well, after reminding his readers that they are loved by God, John steps back from his teaching on what it means to truly live as a Christian. He reminds his readers that really, this is not a new commandment. This isn't a a new and strange teaching. This is an old commandment that has been enunciated time and time again. And then John says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Well, as readers, we're going to ask, well, which is it, John? Is it new or is it old? And John would answer us by saying, yes. Yes. He'd say both. So what on earth is he talking about? John is talking about God's command to love our neighbors and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this fits well with what John says in verses 9 to 10. I think we can see how this is an old commandment in the sense that it was proclaimed long ago, so long ago, in the Ten Commandments. What did Jesus effectively say was the sum of the Ten Commandments? He said in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, that the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Loving others was certainly a commandment that the people of God have been hearing from the beginning. And it was no doubt a command that John was teaching his readers when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ. This is also a new command, though, in the sense that Jesus, he he repromulgated this law of love. He declared it again and afresh. So in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Though this command was old 
first being expressed in the Old Testament. It is also new in the sense that it was re-expressed by Jesus in the New Testament. And there's another sense in which this command is new. Jesus, unlike never before, taught us and publicly demonstrated the fullness of what it means to love others. We saw the, the fullest expression of living out this command in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us that love was selfless and sacrificial, that it was tender and compassionate, that it considered others and sought to meet their needs. He showed us that it was aimed at glorifying God and bringing good to others. And about halfway through verse 8, do you see, John says something quite amazing. He says that this old but new command is true in Christ and true in us. You see, with the coming of Jesus Christ, the expression of the fullness of God's love, the power, light, and love of heaven has broken into this dark, fallen, and sin-filled world. In the coming of Jesus Christ, and especially in the power of his resurrection, a new day has dawned. Jesus has inaugurated a new creation order, and while the sun is not fully shining on that day, it is already shining. The fullness of the day of the Lord will come, for the sun has risen. Darkness is even now passing away, even if it is not passing away as quickly as we want. Darkness is even now passing away, not only because Jesus got up from the dead in new creation power and the power of the heavenly age, and the power of the age that is to come, but also because his spirit lives within us, demonstrating the power of the age that is to come. In the lives of the believers, the Spirit is demonstrating the power of the age that is dawning precisely as we live and love like the Lord Jesus Christ. The light and love of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit has broken into our dark hearts and he is beginning to dispel the darkness. He is pushing it back as we are convicted of sin and compelled to turn away from it and to turn to our dear Savior in faith. John wants believers to recognize the reality of what is taking place in their hearts and lives, and he wants them to live out of that reality. He wants them to see that the love of God is at work in their hearts. This is God's love advancing within us. He loves us so much that he's not going to leave us in darkness. Slowly but surely, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God is pushing back darkness in our hearts and making us to shine like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how the new but old command is true in us. God's powerful love is at work in us, and so we should practice that love in our lives. So let's turn now and consider the third point, our third point, the practice of love. And as we do, read 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 now. John writes there in verse 9, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still, meaning he never came out of it, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, in these verses... 
John urges us to practice loving our brothers and so reveal that we abide in the light. In other words, here John brings home the ethical implications of the old but new commandment for those in whom God's light is shining. He again does it through a contrast. And we should get used to this as we're reading uh, John's letters. Because John loves this literary technique. He loves a good contrast. Again, using the metaphor of darkness and light... This contrast, John clearly says that, verse 9, whoever says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And it's, it's not hard to get at what John is saying here. If you, as a professing believer, hate your brother in Christ, John doesn't think that you are savingly united to Jesus Christ. And we need to think about what John means by hating your brother. Hate is a strong word, isn't it? I'm guessing here that some in this congregation actually discourage their children from using the word hate precisely for that reason, because it is so strong. In the original language, in the Greek, this word hatred carries with it connotations of a settled disposition. So, In other words, this is a person's fixed orientation toward another. And this is dangerous on many levels. But our minds should almost immediately turn to Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it said in the days of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. John is probably echoing Jesus' teaching here in in 1 John. And he may very well be offering a direct application to his first readers with a situation that they were facing. In 1 John 2.19, it becomes clear that there were some people who left the congregation in something of a huff. John goes so far as to say that they left and their departure revealed that they weren't really in the light at all. The hatred that John is speaking about in verse 9 is a kind of settled hatred or disposition against true Christians. It may not be violent because it seems to be taking place within the context of a a church community, but it certainly must have reared its head in nasty ways. Among other ways, this hatred may have shown itself in speaking poorly, if not falsely, behind a brother's back. Insults may have been hurled or remarks expressed in a kind of condescension, maybe a kind of theological bullying, a a looking down. You don't know quite as much here, so let me just inform you and instruct you. Perhaps one individual endeavored to undermine another Christian's reputation instead of building it up and protecting it. Perhaps certain members were excluded or dismissed as unimportant. Perhaps this hatred reared its head in a lack of due respect or meekness those whom God has called to lead and care for the congregation. Perhaps this hatred was boiling up through holding minor offenses against a brother when instead love should have covered over a multitude of sins. Perhaps at some point all of this came to a head because darkness cannot peacefully coexist with light. John doesn't say what exactly this hatred was, this settled disposition, how it manifested itself in the congregation, but we know that it was taking place in the church for John is talking about relationships between someone who's professing to be a brother and a brother. Be on guard against a kind of settled disposition. Be on guard against condescension. 
Be on guard against gossip. Bring a bad report about another one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Be on guard against a spirit of avoidance. You don't want to engage. Because what John is saying is that the one who hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, perhaps in reading and thinking about John's letter, you are more and more concerned for your soul. It's possible that John's crisp, clear, and almost unnuanced writing style has set you to wonder, am I in the light? Am I really a Christian? Because frankly, some of these people, I, I can't stand them. And if that's you, if you wonder whether or not you're really a believer, then remembering the reason, remember the reason that John is writing his letter. He is writing to give believers assurance of their eternal life. John doesn't mean for his letter and his teaching to throw you into an internal paralyzed state of introspection. Yes, some introspection is going to be necessary, but John's main goal is to point you to Jesus Christ and prod you to work out your faith with fear and trembling. And I think that if a believer walked up to John and said, John, look, all that you have said, it's got me to wondering about whether or not I'm really a Christian. What do you think John would say? I don't think John would say, you know what, come here, sit down on my couch. Let me ask you a thousand questions and help you search your soul. Maybe John would ask one or two, but I think John would say, friend, believe that Jesus died for your sins. Now, go and give yourself to the work of loving others as God has revealed his love in Jesus Christ. Another John, Jonathan Edwards, once said, quote, assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination as by action, end quote. And, And I think he meant... By that, what the Apostle John means, that Christians will actively and joyfully pursue the keeping of God's commandments, of loving God's people, because in doing so, they're imitating the Savior who bought them and reflecting the character of God the Father who loves them. All of this takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as you see yourself loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're seeing the work of the Spirit in you, and that should comfort you and assure you. In calling us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, John is giving us the antidote of hatred, isn't he? Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is going to take work. It's going to take effort. We're not the easiest people to love. But we really ought to give ourselves to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We really ought to prioritize seeing each other throughout the week. We ought to have each other into our homes for fellowship. We ought to esteem one another as more important than ourselves. We ought to embrace the relational terms that the Bible gives to us. We ought to wholeheartedly embrace the kinship of brothers and sisters. I mean, think about how living out of that framework of being a brother or sister would shape the way that we love one another. We might more readily sacrifice for one another because you do things for family, right? We might love when it isn't so convenient to us. We might listen to one another more and close our mouths more. We would speak in such a way as to give grace to those who hear, who seek the unity of the family as a whole. We would also come to recognize that we can't love the world at the expense of loving our brothers and sisters. 
While we're given the command to love our neighbor in the scriptures, that love for neighbor doesn't come at the expense of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. And so the world, in a certain sense, has to see that love that we have for one another. If you want to rightly love the world, show them your deep love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We also need to guard the love that we have for one another. Satan would love to incite hatred in this congregation. Pray against that. Fight against that. Take care that you think most charitably about each other's words. That sounded off to me, but I know my brother loves me. I know that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe I misunderstood something there. Take care to think most charitably about each other's words. Overlook a multitude of sins. Be on guard against being suspicious of others. Fight against bitterness toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let something eat away at you and gnaw at you and eat away at your love to erode it. If you need to, right, follow Jesus' encouragement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, and Matthew 18 of talking with your brother or sister about something that's been bothering you. Talk about it specifically, not in vague terms. That won't help them. It won't help you move forward in resolution and love. Be humble in how you speak about an offense. Offer it as a possibility that you may have misunderstood. Hey, you said this. Maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. Is, is this what you were saying? Can you tell me some more? And listen charitably. Perhaps part of humble love would be to believe that there's a possibility that you're the one in error and that your brother or sister in Christ has been offering something that you need to hear. Now, from what I understand from your your pastors and your elders, you've done a good job of loving one another. You, you, You visit the sick, you provide meals, you pray with and for one another, you proclaim God's word to one another, you give rides to one another, you encourage one another, you have one another into your homes and so much more. From all that I understand, this church is marked by love and praise God for that. And I think our Savior would be pleased to see you grow in love for one another. So don't grow weary of doing good. Keep loving one another. Keep thinking of new ways to love one another. And in the months ahead, should the Lord unite you with College Park Baptist Church, you'll have more brothers and sisters in Christ to love. More love. More brothers in Christ, more sisters in Christ to esteem. More brothers and sisters in Christ to consider more important than yourselves. More brothers and sisters to serve. More brothers and sisters to visit. More brothers and sisters to pray for, to learn from, and to share God's word with. You'll have more brothers and sisters in Christ to partner with in sharing God's love with the lost. More brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you as you share God's love for the lost. More brothers and sisters to encourage, to build up, and to help them make it safely home to heaven. We need each other's help to make it safely home to heaven. Maybe you need more people in your life to help you make it safely home to heaven. There is an exciting opportunity for richly growing in love and expanding your love. You should be eager and ready to love, not anxious. You should be asking yourself, how can I serve my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe as I turn up at church, I will purpose to ask each new person that I meet, how can I pray for you? What do you have on your plate this week that, that you're burdened by, that you're worried about? How can I pray for you? Maybe 
they would be encouraged by an invitation to brunch or lunch or dinner at your home. Begin to brainstorm now about how you can seek to love your brothers and sisters in Christ in the days ahead. Children and young people, it is my prayer that even now you would be learning what it means to love other believers. I am sure that you are seeing this played out in your parents' lives, but perhaps even now you should endeavor to practice loving others. Ask your parents about how you might begin to form strong friendships with others here at church. Ask your parents to help you think of other ways you can serve your friends here and appropriately express Christ-like love to them. That would be a great conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. In contrast to those who claim to be in the light but actually walk in darkness, John says there in verse 10, do you see verse 10? Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Jesus talked a lot about abiding in John's gospel. He uh, called his disciples time and time again to abide in him, to have faith in him, to trust him. And this abiding, Jesus said, would reveal itself in living like him. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, according to John, is a signal. It's a, a sign that points to the fact that you're a true believer. And he goes further still, doesn't he? He says that the one who loves his brother, there is no cause for stumbling. Isn't that amazing? No cause? What is John saying here? Well, remember, John is writing through the lens of this light and darkness metaphor. If you've ever had to walk through a, a dark room, especially with toys all over the floor, uh, then you know that there are many causes for stumbling in that room. But if you have the light on in that room, that same room, though there may be objects which are hazardous to your health on the floor, you'll be able to navigate the danger. You'll be able to avoid stumbling because you can see where you're going. That's what John is saying here. Because that God has graciously turned the light on for believers. Because he has caused the light of Jesus Christ to shine in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because God has illuminated the truth of his word in our darkened minds. We can walk without stumbling or falling. Remember, this is a letter of assurance. John is saying, Christian, you can do this. You can walk in the light. You can love. God has given you all that you need for life and godliness. In his power, he will keep and guard you through faith until the day of your salvation. This doesn't mean that Christians won't sin. We will sin. John has clearly said that he thinks we'll sin. That's why he said in John chapter 2, verse 1 again, that if you do sin, remember that Jesus gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what John is saying here in verse 10 is that true Christians will not stumble, fall, and so lose their salvation. No one can snatch true believers out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And no one is no one. Not even we can snatch ourselves out of Jesus and the Father's hands if Jesus has truly given us eternal life. Having said that, our lives may reveal that we don't actually belong to Jesus and never did. The way we treat our brother may reveal that we've never actually come into the light, but have always been walking in darkness. That's why John says there in verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's a situation in which you are guaranteed to stumble. If you're in the darkness, if your eyes are blinded, then there's no hope of you not stumbling. Not only that, look again at how John describes the darkness. 
he says that the darkness has blinded the eyes of the person walking in darkness. Not only are lost sinners blind, but their sin also contributes to their blindness, their disorientation. Darkness, sin, isn't neutral or dormant. It's active. And this shows us all the more reason that we should practice love. So let's conclude by reflecting on that just a little bit more now. From John's letter, we've seen that we can have certainty, certainty of our salvation as we keep in step with the Spirit and walk in the pattern of love, keeping God's commandments to love. We've also seen that we're strengthened by God's love. His love toward us displayed in the work of Jesus Christ is the ground of our gospel obedience. John has not simply told us the truth. He's told us to practice the truth. He has called us to give ourselves to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. If Jesus said, and he did say this, in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, then the apostle John, in here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, effectively says, look, this is how, this is how you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May our God give us this knowledge with increasing certainty. May we walk in the pattern of love, strengthened by God's powerful love, so that we may practice love for the glory of our God, who is love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a God of love, that you have loved us in Christ, and that Jesus Christ has loved us to the death, and that he's loved us through death, and that he is now risen and reigning and expressing his love for us as he intercedes for us. Father, thank you for showing us your love and pouring out your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we pray and ask that we would be mirrors that show your love to the world. Father, help us to love our brother. Help us to love our sister. Help us to love as Christ has loved. Help us to love selflessly and sacrificially. Help us to love with truth. Help us to love with humility. We pray and ask that you would display the love of Christ in our hearts as a light shining in the darkness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.